Welcome to the Tell Me What You Know podcast. My name is Scott Skelton, and in partnership with the Lufkin Daily News, we talk to interesting people doing interesting things. Today, we've got a great podcast with pilot Deanna Wallace. Deanna recently ferried an aircraft from North America to India. We'll talk to her about her journey, but also how she became a pilot and some of her greatest pilot stories. Welcome to the show. All right, welcome to the show, Deanna. So, you had a big trip recently in a King Air. Tell me where you started and where you ended up. I did. I started with a King Air 200 in Fargo, North Dakota, and we ended up dropping it off in India, the country, not to be confused with Indiana, which everyone seems to think I've been saying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a big difference between the subcontinent of India and the state of Indiana, and about 10 days travel time distance, right? Yes. So um, I know just enough to know that ferrying a plane like that across multiple countries is pretty difficult. The logistics, the paperwork. So is that what your experience was as well? It was it was challenging. It was definitely different than the way we operate planes across the states. Um, we had a great uh, organization handling us, for lack of a better word. They they got in front of us and they helped file the proper uh, international flight plans and sped all the custom stuff in advance of us. They arranged our hotel rooms, so they really smoothed the way so that all we had to do was fly the plane, land, find our point of contact, fuel or make our stop or whatever and and keep going. I I can't imagine having handled all those logistics my first time through on my own for sure. It's definitely daunting getting through all the different countries requirements. Wow. Well, I want to back up for a minute because you've been a pilot for a long time. So tell us when you first uh, took a lesson, I guess. Let's start with that. How old were you? Where were you? What what was going on? It was about uh, almost 22 years ago. Yeah, this month, actually, I guess. I uh, was 17 and decided it was it was between my junior and senior year in high school, the summer between, and I thought, well, I need to go learn to fly. It's it's that time, so I went out to local airport, met the only flight instructor on the field, and said, how do I get started? And, and there we go. So by August, I was doing my first solo and uh, took my check ride in December of that year and just didn't stop. I, I loved it, fell in love with it, thought, Sounds like a better career than being an architect, which is what I had planned on being. Right. And um, yeah, so I started looking at collegiate options that would progress the the aviation career. Right. So uh, did you start in like a 152 or a 150 like everybody else or? Something very similar. I started in a Beechcraft Skipper, which you can hardly find. They're just not out there anymore. Um, but it's a small two-seat, low-wing plane, you know, just enough room to squeeze a, a student and an instructor in, and yeah, no air conditioning, nothing fancy, moves along at a whopping 90 knots, you know, just 
just right. a good training aircraft. Right. And so you graduate from high school, you've looked at your college options, and where do you end up? I ended up at Auburn University. All right. Um, and I grew up in North Georgia, and it was uh, it was difficult to not stay at a Georgia state college because they offer what's called the Hope Scholarship, and any student who graduates with an A average and maintains it gets basically a free ride at any state college as long as they maintain that AB average through college. Um, but the state of Georgia didn't offer an aviation program anywhere, and Auburn did. Uh, because there wasn't one offered in the state of Georgia, Auburn did waive my out-of-state tuition. And, yeah, so there I went, got my degree in aviation management and all the, all the rest of my flight ratings through my instructor certificate. And so by the time you graduate, about how old are you? I graduated at 20. Oh, wow. You, <laughs> you, <laughs> you were a gunner. Okay, so at 20 years old, tell us all the different ratings and, and certificates you had for, for flying aircraft or dealing with aircraft. Sure. So I got my private pilot while I was in high school. So when I went to Auburn, they put me straight into my instrument rating and then my commercial certificate, and then I got my multi-engine add-on, and then I got my initial flight instructor certificate, which allows me to teach private and commercial pilots, and then I got my instrument add-on to that so I could teach instrument flying, and then I got my multi-engine instructor. So, yeah, er everything you could get at that time, I did get. The only certificate still... Um, hanging out there is an airline transport pilot certificate, but you had to be 23 <laughs> to get it. <laughs> so, so, so three years shy. Three years shy. I had nothing to do but sit and build time and, you know, burn off, burn off age. I okay. Guess. So, so uh, you graduate. Um, what's your first job in the aviation industry? What do you go to do? I graduated in December of 2000, and my first job was actually instructing for Auburn. I stayed there as an instructor for the next six months, and then I went to work for Continental Express Airlines back when it was Continental Express, still wholly owned by Continental before all the mergers. Um, I was fresh out of training when 9-11 happened, so I had completed all my basic indoctrination, the ground schools, the sim checks, my check rides, and then 9-11 happened. So it was a very short-lived time there as they furloughed, you know, along with all the airlines in the U.S. at the time, about 10,000 pilots got furloughed. And uh, we all went to whatever jobs we could find in the market at that time. Right. They'd like to have all those pilots back right now, wouldn't they? Boy, would they. And they, they lost a lot. A lot of people switched careers entirely at that point. So a, a, a small percentage came back, but they kind of have a name for us as the lost generation because they just lost a ton of that particular population. And my understanding is right now we, we are entering a pilot shortage. We are, we are there. We are, there is a huge, not just pilot shortage, but in all aspects of aviation, there's a shortage of mechanics and avionics professionals and air traffic controllers. The entire industry is 
booming with demand and a shortage of, of people to support it. Yeah, so if you're a parent or a student out there listening to this podcast, here's a career opportunity for oh, you. Oh, it's a fantastic career. And if flying flying the plane is not for you, there are plenty of support options around it. Those planes don't fly without mechanics and the proper avionics. And I, there's a huge, huge... Uh, the aviation market in general, every aspect is is experiencing shortages. And it, it, do you attribute it to this post nine eleven lost generation, or just it wasn't p- promoted well enough, or both? There's a there's a lot of different factors that kind of went into this. Um, low so that contributed for sure um low wages at the regional level which is where most pilots have to start before they get to a major airline you know my starting salary in 2001 at Continental Express was $19,900 as a pilot right yeah so it wasn't um it wasn't a you knew you you would gain some seniority and everything is seniority based and you know that would increase and you'd get to a major and and it really increases but that's a that's a tough step for a lot of people to to live through um, you know basically below poverty level wages for two years before you're making anything livable um, so low wages kind of held it down and then the uh, the baby booming boomer generation, you know, they came out of the military. Um, they're just starting to retire, and they took a huge population of, or a huge segment of the pilot slots have been filled by them. So now people are retiring faster than they can train and replace them, and it's just it's all kind of contributed to, yeah, this big shortage. You know, right. airline management and mergers and combined seniority list and you know they're just losing pilots faster than they can replace them wow all right so if you're a student out there here's your chance great career right so you had this post 9-11 um uh just absolute crash uh in the in the pilot uh aviation market um where you know I, i can remember uh, just how bad it was. And I think I may have met you around that time. So what did you transition to when you just didn't have a, a an option in an airline anymore? Well, I went back to my fallback, which is a flight instructor. And I hate to even call it a fallback. I, I love instructing and I've done it for 20 years now. Um, a lot of pilots do it as a sort of time building step. They'll get in, they'll instruct till they get the time to get to an airline, and then they let their instructor certificate lapse. I didn't do that. I like it. I've always done it. I've always been active at it. Um, so I went to a flight school, and then I, I took a job at flying for a real estate developer on the East Coast in a King Air at the time, and just fell in love with the general aviation and corporate side of the aviation world and decided then, you know, I probably wouldn't go back to the airlines. So when the airlines recalled two years after our furlough, you know, I I had a big decision to make. Do I go back and be an airline pilot or do I stay flying the smaller stuff and 
you know, uh, smaller passenger count, and and that's where I stayed, and I've I've loved every minute of it. So smaller stuff, but I like the people I fly for and with, and the varied destinations and missions. And right, right. It could be anywhere, any day, and in multiple different types of equipment, right? Absolutely. Because, you know, I know you fly everything from, um, well, I've been in a Bonanza with you, uh, a Baron. Now I know you're flying King Airs. You're flying some Piper equipment. So it's just, do you like that variety? I do like the variety. It, um, you know, I usually have to get in the plane and just sit and look at the panel and reacquaint myself with which plane I've just climbed into for a couple minutes before I start the engines. But I do. I like the variety. I like the handling characteristics of them all. And I think that varied experience, you know, has, has taught me a lot of valuable skills that, you know, translate across all aircraft because right. they're all just a just a little bit different. But at the end of the day, a, a plane is a plane is a plane. And that probably keeps you from getting complacent. It does keep you from getting complacent. Which is probably one of the biggest enemies of pilots. It is. It's easy to get comfortable in your own plane and flows and procedures and looking at your avionics package and the buttons in front of you. And yeah, it, it's real easy to get complacent if you're not mixing it up from time to time. Sure. So um, tell us what you're doing now. Well, uh, a lot of the same. You know, I, uh, I do fly a couple, couple King Airs, um, a B100, which is a little different than other King Airs. It's got a different engine type um, than every other King Air out there because, well, it doesn't matter why. A little history lesson there. There was a, a shortage with uh, Pratt & Whitney. They, there was a strike, actually, and so Beechcraft had to switch engines for a couple years, and they went to Garrett, and then back to the Pratt & Whitney's, which is their staple. So yeah. this one has those Garrett engines on it, which is a little bit different. Um, I also fly King Air 300 and 350 series aircraft, which is the largest King Air. And, um, yeah, and around that, I instruct a lot in the Piper PA-46 series. So that's the Malibus, Mirages... Meridians, M600s, jet props. It's a pretty specialized group, and most of my training is not for um, teaching people how to fly, but it's teaching these owners of these aircraft how to fly their aircraft safely. Right. All right. So let's uh, let's let's give a little context here, because you and I may know what you're talking about. So a King Air is a Beechcraft, right? Which is a manufacturer. It is. It's a large. Uh, Twin turboprop aircraft right. seats about 10, 10 passengers. Right. And so a turboprop is essentially kind of a jet engine turning a prop. That's it, exactly what it is. It right. is a jet engine, but they put a governor on there to reduce the speed of a propeller and, and put a prop on the front of it. So very nice aircraft, by the way. Lots of capabilities. Um, uh, it, would, it would be a dream of mine if I could ever own one, but I doubt that happens. But um, And the 350s are, are really large, are they not? They are large. In fact, they can be configured for up to 15 passengers if you really want to squeeze the seats in. But most of them go for a more executive setup with about 10 seats in the back. Keep it comfortable for everyone. Right. 
And on the 350s, the, these large ones that you fly, what, what kind of altitudes uh, are you talking about? What, what flight level are you at? The 350s will go up to about 35,000 feet. So we're still below what, um, you know, most of your airlines are going to be somewhere between 35 and 42,000. Um, so we're just below that. But, yeah, 35,000 feet gets you above most everything these days unless it's a weather system that everybody is going around. Right. And, and at what speeds do these aircraft fly? About 300 knots. So you're talking about 350, 360 miles per hour. Right. So, um, so very nice transportation mode. And, um, and I think the ones that you're flying are based out of Jacksonville. Is that correct? They are just north of here. Um, yes. So there's a, a management company up there that I do a lot of contract work for that manages a couple of these King Airs and uh, also provides the PA-46 specific instruction. And that's, uh, that's who probably 80% of my work is for. All right. And are you still doing like the, the flights for, for individuals who need to go to San Antonio or Austin and say like a Bonanza or, or a Baron uh, like you have in the past? Absolutely. Um, not it. You know, my husband tells me I have a problem saying no. I try to accommodate everyone all the time. But, um, yeah, absolutely. If there are still a number of number of Lufkin clients in, in those planes in Austin and San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, those are all still regular staples in my flying. Awesome. All right, well, let's turn to this big trip because was this a first for you? This was a first for me. All right, so you're, you're going from Fargo. Yes. North Dakota, and you have to go all the way to India. Now, now most people might think you just go straight across and and get there, but I don't think that's the way you went. No, no. All right. So, so, so tell us before we start talking about the flight. Tell how long did it take to just plan the mission? The the planning itself was probably in the works for about a week. um, you know and again we had a lot of help from this handling service that that kind of smoothed the way for what for what our job as pilots was going to be right so you got rid of all the ground logistics and you just had to do uh, the routing and 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 get that down and I guess weather was a factor or it's always a factor always a factor so so do you, you fly up to North Dakota to pick up the plane? We did. We, you know, get all American Airlines from Dallas to Fargo. All right. To pick up the plane. We, um, you know, and the, uh, the person who got me on with this, he's done probably 30 to 40 of these crossings um, over to Europe and uh, the Middle Eastern countries and Asia and in that area and I actually work with him out of Jacksonville and um, good friend mentor he knew an international ferry flights at the very top of my professional bucket list so to speak something I've wanted to do for a long time and and he really helped make this happen so this was actually his his flight that he managed to turn into a training flight for me um, so that I can start doing these with them as well. Um, 
So you're you're sitting in North Dakota. Do you do you how do you choose what time to leave, or is does it matter? Well, when you've got you know four continents to cross, earlier is always better. <laughs> so we were at we were at the airports about nine a.m. every morning on all of our departures. Uh, in this particular first day, and the very first rule, uh, Joe, the other pilot who went with me, told me was. The number one rule is stay flexible, everything's going to change. And sure enough, we get there, 9 a.m., we made a run to the grocery store ahead of that because there were going to be, well, basically the entire Middle East where we weren't going to have access to food or anything and we'd be eating off, you know, whatever we we brought with us. Right. Um, we got there and the plane wasn't ready to go. We got there and pre-flighted everything. We thought it was all great. And then we found a big, big red maintenance ticket in the front windshield and we couldn't figure out what it, why it was there. Um, ended up nothing major, just some missing data cards from our GPS net database, but we had to have those. Uh, it was a Saturday morning. Everybody had left town, and one of the engineers who'd been working on the plane left with those cards in his pocket. So, unfortunately, the poor guy had to be called back in, and you know, to bring us those cards so we could get on our get on our way. But it was a pretty late departure. It was about two to three p.m. before we actually got out of there that day, and we just did what pilots do. We sat around the airport all day and all right waited. All right, so let's talk a bit about about the aircraft. You, what what is it again? It's a King Air two hundred. So it's a a mid size model King Air. It um, about the same seating configuration as a King Air three hundred, but much shorter fuel range. Ah. So that limited the. I have, I've had several people ask me, well, why'd you go east instead of west? Because India is basically on the exact opposite side of the world. And the reason being the prevailing winds are eastbound. So we had a nice push from behind had we had headed east. And had we gone west against those winds, we may not have had the fuel range required to make some large crossings from, say, Alaska to Russia. Right. Over water. So, so um, this aircraft have a restroom on it? It did not. Uh-oh. Most, most, all King Airs do. This particular plane had been modified, was um, modified for weather modification. The entire interior had been stripped out, and there were a couple, a couple seats and some computer stations and lots of piping, and it was going to India to be set up for cloud seating. And I don't know how many people are familiar with that. They do it some in California and some of the drier desert desert areas as well. But when you get some clouds and they just won't form into rain clouds, they do some artificial seeding. They throw uh, dry ice or sil- silver dioxide in it and give something for particles to hang on to to build these into rain clouds. And so that's why this plane was going to India. So no, everything had been stripped out of this plane. So... We, um, or I practiced what I would call strategic dehydration, which is (laughs) (laughs) I knew I was going to have anywhere from a three to a five hour leg and I just planned accordingly. No. So not only you have to plan the fuel, you have to plan the the intake as well for yourself. 
Yes, and it's it's a fine line to walk because, you know, dehydration is terrible for physical and mental fatigue, and so you've got to stay well hydrated, but at the same time, knowing you're not going to have access to a restroom for three to five hours is, you know, probably not a big deal if you're sitting at home not thinking about it, but when you're at 30,000 feet and that's all you can think about it's you know it becomes difficult it does so the first day how far did you go first day we we left Fargo and again we got a late start we left Fargo we crossed into Canada and stopped at a place called Thunder Bay uh, just to make the requisite custom stop and border patrol stop as we were crossing in and then we went on to Goose Bay Canada and I think I mentioned this was on a Saturday. Between Thunder Bay and Goose Bay, Joe's telling me about this trip that he's done in the past, and he's made this North Atlantic crossing, and, you know, he just happens to mention, oh, yeah, and sometimes, you know, you'll end up going through on a Sunday, and Greenland's closed down, and then you've got to wait, and about that time, I mean, there's just this pause, and we're thinking... Oh no, tomorrow's Sunday. <laughs> that's that's our Greenland leg, you know, and it's likely something had we left at nine that morning, we could have gone ahead and gotten on past Greenland. But because of our late start, we were landing in Goose Bay, Canada, right on the easternmost edge. Uh, it was pretty late that night. It was about probably about 10 p.m. I would say, 9:30 or 10 p.m. a little later which was interesting because the sun sets really late and it, I'm not even sure it goes down all the way. Right. Um, so we called, we called our handlers and asked them, you know, what do you want us to do? Do we go and face, and when I say Greenland shuts down, the entire country shuts down on Sunday. They don't provide services. They basically fine you if you do land for them to have to come out and provide these services. So we got to looking, and for our aircraft to land the next day, it would have cost over $2,000 um, in additional fees. And so they asked us to just wait out a day in Goose Bay and um, and continue on on Monday morning. So we had one day of nothing, no flying. And again, that went back to that number one rule I was told you know, expect everything to change and stay flexible. I mean, we knew when we, we didn't even buy airline tickets back from India prior to the trip because you just don't know what day you're getting there. Right. So you wait, you wait out the, uh, the, the I want to say, you know, kind of the Sabbath. <laughs> right, <laughs> Greenland, right. ha- Greenland has a national day of resting and you, uh, you take off and is, is this your, your, personal longest water crossing at this point in your career? Absolutely, yes. The farthest I've gone across the water was to the Bahamas, which we all know is is about 50 miles off the Florida coast. So this was was my longest water crossing for sure. Uh, Yeah, it was was a ton of fun. So we left Canada. We went to Narsishwark, Greenland. Mm-hmm. And stopped for fuel, and then we went on to Keflavik, Iceland, where we where we ended up overnighting there before the our legs the next day. And you know, you look at it on a map, and it's not 
you're not heading anywhere in the general direction of India. Like you mentioned earlier, it is not a straight line. We take the great circle route that takes advantage of these uh, prevailing winds and keeps us within fuel range uh, for this particular aircraft. Right. So you're kind of going over the pole. I mean, not exactly, but but more over the top of the earth than around the earth. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, and um, one of the neat things that I have recently, my daughter flew back from, from New Delhi uh, just last week, and to watch the aircraft literally, and they went way north because, you know, with FlightAware and everything, you can do that now. And it's just amazing what they do. So, so you go from uh, Greenland to Iceland, you, you overnight, and then is 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 it a pretty long water trip? Then in I think it was into the UK, wasn't it? Yes, we went into Ireland. Okay, next. it's not the UK exactly, but but near just it, just north of there. Yeah, yeah, that was that was probably the longest stretch of water it was between Iceland and Ireland and. It's interesting because there's no radar services through there, through those areas. So you have to make regular position and timing reports to to air traffic control facilities along the route because they can't see you. So they're manually marking your position as you go based on your reports. Which again is is something that you know we get used to this fantastic U.S. airspace system where you can be inside and in contact with a controller at any point, you know, anywhere. You you can't get lost. You can't go missing. Um, you know, so it was it it was a new experience. Wow! Yeah. Did you carry a a, a satellite? Um telephone or anything with you on these trips? did not carry a satellite phone. I carry a Garmin InReach, though, which is a small portable satellite device that allows me to send text messages um, via satellite. It also has a, an SOS button. And another part of this crossing was we had to have uh, personal flotation devices and immersion suits were we to go down, and they basically protect you up to gosh, some ridiculously cold water, you know, long enough for you to be, for you to be found. So it was, yeah, a lot of, a lot of planning went into, into the actual water crossing, flare guns, you know, anything that would help you out in the event that we had to ditch in the water. So is there some point in these long over water crossings that it's a go no go. You're like, okay, we've we're gonna about to reach the point where we can't go back to to Iceland, and if we go further, do, do we have enough? I mean, what what's the calculation there? There is. You've also you've always got to calculate your fuel range. You know, beyond what point can you only go forward and not go back? And if you encounter any problems or stronger headwinds than expected, and again, our particular route kept us in the realm of mostly tailwinds, thankfully. But were you to encounter additional headwinds or mechanical problems or anything that slowed the aircraft down below what was planned, you have to do some fuel calculations and, and recalculate. Do I need to go back or do I continue forward? Right. Any mechanical difficulties on this flight? None. Thank goodness. Everything everything worked perfectly on the plane. Oh, Good. All right, so you land in Ireland, and then kind of kind of tell us what happens next. Where's the next stops, and how's that go? 
We landed in Ireland where we had um, had quite interesting conversations with the the fuel men there. They uh, they got as much of a kick out of my Texas accent as I did out of their Irish accent. That was a that was a fun stop. We left there. We went on to Liege, Belgium, stopped for fuel, and then we went on to Croatia uh, to overnight. We were supposed to go into Italy that evening, but uh, a hotel shortage actually is what caused us to go to Croatia instead. Um, just the Italy's a difficult place to get into sometimes because of their not all countries. Uh, well. Most countries outside the U.S. are not overly general aviation friendly. Very high user fees and fuel prices, and this is why we have so many foreigners come into the U.S. to learn to fly and get their certificates because it's so cost prohibitive to fly over there if you're not an airline. Um, so the combination of, of the places we that were realistic for us to stop in Italy combined with the hotel shortage caused us to divert over to Croatia, um, which was a beautiful place. I wish I'd seen more of it. Most of our days were, you know, early starts and late arrivals and get what sleep you can with the changing time zones and the sun setting or not setting in like in Iceland. And it's just, yeah, it was, it was a whirlwind through there. So we left uh, Croatia the next morning, went to... Um, Egypt. Um, oh, wow. Yes. That had to be different. <laughs> Egypt was different. And, you know, I was really worried the whole time about, while English is the official worldwide language uh, for air traffic controllers and pilots, um, there is no official dialect or <laughs> accent. And so the the Egyptians, for me, were the most difficult to understand um, the con- you know, the controller's instructions. There was a, a whole lot of asking them to repeat the instructions. But, you know, once we were on the ground, everyone was really friendly, very helpful. Uh, they they fueled us, uh, allowed us, you know, quick restroom break, and we were back on our way to uh, Saudi Arabia next, which was, as a female, the... I'm not even sure I know the right adjective to describe that stop. It was, um, the customs are different for sure regarding females. I wasn't sure what um, my appearance as a foreigner in that country, even just for a fuel stop, should be. So, you know, I threw on a, I made sure uh, to respect their customs of females being mostly covered. I had a long robe type thing that I put on over my, over my uniform and um but it was interesting at the they would only really only talk or defer to uh you know joe my male counterpart on this flight and so even though i had done the flying on that leg and was clearly in the captain's seat you know they would only take the fuel order from him and you know, only make eye contact with him, and it was it was different. I won't uh, won't deny I was a little happy when it was time to take off and <laughs> head on did, to the UAE. Did you uh, spend any time? Uh, did you spend the night in the Saudi Saudi Arabia? And what city did you land in? 
we landed in, you know, we landed in some pretty obscure places because of the ease of services. Um, so you didn't always land at the big airports? No, we didn't okay. always land at the, in fact, we rarely landed at the big airports. Yeah, just easier to get in and out without all the commercial traffic. It was. Okay, so on to the United Arab Emirates. Mm-hmm. Were they a little more friendly over oh, there? Yeah. United Arab Emirates was great. We landed in Abu Dhabi, mm-hmm. and um, it was, they were great there. Of course, you know, we landed at 1030 at night, and we're taking care of all our fueling and everything for the early morning the next day. Um, and again, because general aviation isn't, big over there because of the user fees. It was it was interesting coming back the next morning. We had some hang-ups getting through uh, passport control and customs because we were having a hard time explaining. We were pilots. We were on this small plane. You know, we, we were in polo shirts and slacks, not white shirts and ties and epaulets like they expect the pilots to be in. And we, we had some difficulties accessing the plane that one time you know, just getting through passport control and trying to explain where we were trying to go and what we were trying to do. So uh, is that where you ended up sitting under the wings? It is. It is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so if anyone's seen my Facebook page, um, I tried to catalog each day somewhat, and we did. We Because of our the trouble getting through passport control there, we were late for our departure spot, and they gave us another departure time about 50 minutes from our original one. So we get out to the plane. We were probably only five minutes past our original time. Um, and unlike in the U.S., you have to have permission to even start your engines, and they're not going to give you that permission until it's... or in, And you don't want to just sit there and burn fuel for however long waiting on your departure time, especially when you've got long legs like we did. Um, So, yeah, we get out there, and it is over 100 degrees. It's just after 9 in the morning. It's it's hot. That plane was a sauna inside, and the coolest place we could find was sitting on the ground under the wing because once we were through all the security checks and they delivered us to the plane, that's where we were staying. And so we had about 30 to 40 minutes to just sit under a wing and not bake. <laughs> not bake as best you could. So after you leave uh, UAE, where do you go from there? Our very next stop was India. And so it was a, a, large, a, a large crossing across the, uh, across the sea there to, um, into India. We stopped in Ahmedabad for customs and then found out it was, we were supposed to take the plane on to a secondary location in India, but because of the weather modification equipment on board, it was going to be a two-day customs process for them to check the plane out and approve it for use inside the country. And so um, our handlers decided at that time there was another plane coming uh, through the same service two days behind us, and they decided it'd be more efficient to go ahead and just send us back to the States and let the second crew, when they dropped their plane off for the same process, to hop in this one that should be finishing and carry it on from there. Got it. So this entire process takes how many days? It took us five actual flying days um, to get over there. We had the one down day uh, in, in Canada. So six days from the time we departed Fargo till we landed in North Dakota, in India. And then 
it took us two days, about 24 hours of actual transit travel time to um, in a plane in an airline to get back to Dallas. So when you when you terminated your ferry trip, where did you fly out of in India? They stuck us on a domestic flight up to Delhi, and then we got on there. We went, hopped on Lufthansa, went to Frankfurt, Germany, and then direct from there back to Dallas-Fort Worth. Yeah, interesting. So as an aside, Allison, my daughter, who just came back, went Delhi to Qatar, Qatar to DFW, which the Qatar to DFW... Uh, I think, uh, interestingly, they go they go east uh, as well when they went DFW to Cutter, mm-hmm. 17. Then coming back, it was about 15. So long flight. It is a very long flight. You Especially know, in coach. <laughs> interestingly enough, when we left Saudi Arabia going to UAE, we were supposed to overfly Cutter, And we got airborne and Bahrain's approach control you know, the controller comes on, he goes, well, I don't know why, but Cutter's military has said, y'all can't overfly tonight. And it's, we left Saudi Arabia right at sunset. It's dark. And he said, we're going to vector you out a little further out over the Persian Gulf. Gulf. <laughs> right. right around the Strait of Hormuz. Exactly. Exactly. So we had to skirt Cutter's airspace before turning back to the UAE a little bit. There's, um, there are some U.S. restrictions at the moment from... Uh, U.S. registered aircraft flying in a certain area close to Iran right, right now. So we were um, a little bit closer to that line than I would have liked to have been, but on the non-restricted side as we crossed the, the Persian Gulf there. And it was beautiful. I mean, at night there was, you know, very little light pollution, and you could see the the cities and the dark desert areas and... You know, it was it was a great flight once you got past Warrior and the Iran's right off your left wing. Right. <laughs> and shooting so, down drones the week before. The, right. <laughs> and 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 taking over tankers and right. everything else. Yeah, I had a similar experience sitting at home watching uh, a loved one fly in that area. So when you when you did make that deviation and kind of flew uh, through the Persian Gulf, did you did you then cut through Pakistani air territory, or did you go on down and and catch the coast of India? We called we um, we made the deviation and then turned back to the UAE. The, now the next day, going from the UAE to India, we did cut through a corner of Pakistan's right. airspace there. Um, all as well. We, yeah. we avoided most of the stands. and uh, <laughs> Right. You know. But it, it's just weird because we sit over here in the United States and we see the world news and we know the conflict that's going on in that area and, and, and the, poly, the geopolitical situation. And then you're flying a twin engine, private, U.S. Uh, uh, aircraft in that area it's got to be a little bit weird it is a little bit weird and you know and I was told up front you know don't don't be overly excited or enthusiastic about being from the U.S. not everyone's crazy about us you know um so so yeah we you know kept everything very professional made our stops as quickly and efficiently and as pleasantly as we could to try to leave everyone with a good impression of 
us and our operations and so that they'd you know welcome the next guy in and it was um, it was overall a really great experience. Like I said, the uh, the only difficulties were in Saudi, and that was only difficult because I was female. So. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I guess it's 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 kind of like you should have learned in kindergarten. Kindness and pleasantness goes a long way. Absolutely. And um, then I guess my takeaway from your experience in Saudi Arabia is: Aren't you glad you live here, where? Uh, you have the opportunity to do what you do, uh, just like a male counterpart. Absolutely. Completely unhindered here. It's it, it's great. It's completely different culture, and, you know, you, you have to respect their own culture and beliefs and, and what they do, but um, it does make you very grateful to, to be in a place like the States where you don't have those same challenges. Right, right. So you got another one planned yet? I do. All right. Actually, where um, is it? Back to India to bring the same planes back uh, in October. So again, because they're there for weather modification purposes, they're on loan um, at the moment for to the to the country, and they'll be coming back in this in the fall. So right. I'm hoping to be on the trip that brings them back. And this next one will be kind of phase two of the training. Uh, they'll send me over again with a more experienced pilot, but there we would pick up ideally two airplanes, one of us in each and kind of caravan back versus both of us being in the same plane going through it step by step. Right. So, so cause, cause one of the things that people do love about the King Air is it can be single pilot operated. Yeah. And the ones I fly out of here are mostly single pilot operated. Very rarely do we have two pilots on board unless the the client has just requested two for that day. Or sometimes if it's an unusually long, challenging day, you know, where fatigue might set in, two is always better. But most of the time, we're a single pilot operation in the King years. So when you come back from India, you talked about the prevailing winds. Will you just... uh, backtrack the way you came almost or will you go the other way i am not entirely sure that will be part of my learning curve on this next trip but i think we're going to go the other way i think we'll take advantage again of those easterly winds and probably make the trek across china south korea japan up to russia over to alaska and then back down to north dakota that way wow That'll be fascinating. Yes. You'll have made an around-the-world trip. Yes, I'm so excited about it. That's awesome. Well, thanks for being with us today. Um, it's, it's, it's always a pleasure to be with you, whether it's in an airplane or, or just sitting in a conference room. Great trip. Fabulous story. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right.